from the lands of the Gadigal people. This is the first week of Mark's very well-earned break. So you're getting me for the next few weeks. I'm going to be taking you through a few different episodes and, you know, keeping up the tradition of talking about Australia's climate community. This week's episode, I have to say, was of Mark's suggestion because it is an interview of me. Uh, Mark thought it was a good idea so that you, the listener, know what I'm about and a bit of who I am. But I wasn't too into the idea of me being the first person that I curate myself. Uh, But Luckily, this project is an introduction to six pretty amazing climate leaders as well as textile art, which I'm really passionate about. So it's an Artbreaker episode about a textile art series that I've done this year. And so, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. I hope that you learn something. And if you listen to this and think oh my god, I want to be involved and I want to do something like this, please reach out. I'm super keen to get more people making art and making things with their hands. And if you need any tips or support, get in touch. I am keen as a green bean. All right, that's all from me and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Artbreaker, a show on the Climactic Collective, the Trans-Tasman Podcast Network by and for the climate community, how their work is affected by and how it's hoping to engage with the times that we're living through. Today's guest is a member of the Climactic Collective and a frequent collaborator of mine, also a dear friend and an amazing artist across multiple disciplines, and she also doesn't come from the traditional artist background. We're going to hear a lot more about that in this episode and it's quite interesting. So today's guest is Eve Brennan, and we're going to start the show like we like to start all of these shows and ask Eve to acknowledge uh, the country she's on in Australia. Yes, I'm Eve, and today I'm coming to you from the lands of the Gadigal and the Bidjigal nations, Uh, but I thought I might go a bit further because I actually have an acknowledgement of country that I made for this work. And so this work that we're talking about today I made on the lands of the Gadigal and the Bidjigal, the Wongal, the Gunbangara, the Darug, Nambri and the Nunawal people, all these different nations because it took me a really long time to make it. So I 
to go and visit people and brought my work with me as I went. So yeah, I'm today I'm on Gadigal and Digital Land, but this episode is is a culmination of work from all over the place. And I would like to acknowledge everybody, because that's always better, more the merrier. How that's about fantastic. You, uh, I'm in uh, Tamaki Makoro, Auckland, uh, which is Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm on the lands of the, the Iwi, the Maori people of this land, who um, sovereignty is enshrined in Te Tiriti, or the Treaty of Waitangi. Uh, thank you, Eve. Um, I'd love to see that like going forward in more media and more artistic works, like that acknowledgement of, of where the art was made, on whose land it was made. It wouldn't add too much to you, the already lengthy credits of movies, to have like you know, yes, sure, it was, like, funded partially by Quebec film, but maybe also, whose land was this shot on? All these beautiful locations of, you know, pristine woodlands. I'm imagining the Lord of the Rings would have uh, quite a few acknowledgements to make. It'd be a cool thing to have happen in Australian film as well. Random little aside. So on Art Breaker, we've had a variety of artists on and talked about a variety of artistic disciplines, from music to poetry to graphic novels. But yeah, we, we've never had handcrafts or like anything sort of handmade, woven, anything to do with like texture and textile. So rather than me sort of teasing what this whole thing is about, I mean, like we're going to have strands ah, of various things woven into to this piece. So Eve, do you maybe want to sort of walk us through what the what the piece is and then we'll go into how it came about after that. But just like the actual the objects themselves. What are we looking at? Sure. This series of artworks were a portrait series that are all handmade from all upcycled or foraged items all the way down to the thread. There is nothing new in these artworks. I've mounted them on sticks I've found. Um, so they're predominantly textile art. I've, I've sewn them all together from things I've found. So it can be all sorts of stuff in them, overwhelmingly dead stock, but also like plastic bags, some cellophane. I, I found some gold cellophane and used a lot of it. Buttons, the things that you put on hoodies to do them up, all sorts of things. But what I've used them for is to create portraits of climate leaders. Couple yeah, of clarifying sure. questions there. What's the term dead stock? So dead stock comes from fashion houses overwhelmingly. When we make clothes, you need an excess of material in each design so that if something goes wrong, you've got enough to complete your order. And that means that there's a lot of textile waste that goes to waste without even being used because they can fill the orders without anything going wrong. And there's often meters and meters of fabric left over. You can get them from the fabric store, which is a really great now online shop, but a chain of shops that takes dead stock and sells it to anyone who wants to make something. And then also I got mine from Reverse Garbage here in Sydney, where there's a lot of different dead stocks and pretty much anything they can get their hands on from different factories. So, <laughs> so yeah. dead stock and offcuts aren't necessarily the same thing, but they're both waste streams of the fashion industry. Yes. So a key difference between dead stock and offcuts is that offcuts are often like little fragments, whereas like dead stock is the whole ream, like you would get in Spotlight or Lincraft. Like there's a, a whole of cloth. Yeah, yeah thing, a roll of um, fabric that 
yep. would otherwise go to landfill. And they just order extra, so it's it's there in, in case they need it. But if it's not used, it's surplus yeah. to requirements. Yeah. It's interesting. It paints a really cool picture of kind of the, the texture and like what's gone into these portraits. And I thought maybe a cool way to describe exactly who these are of and, and sort of to paint a scene and, and take us there. Like th- these works, there's a plan for their showing and for them to be shared with the world, not just described audibly on a podcast, but actually a chance for you to see and touch maybe, <laughs> maybe not, maybe touch these things. How about this? Let's, let's all close our eyes unless you're driving, in which case, please don't close your eyes. And can you describe to us what you kind of picture that gallery showing to be? So if we walked into a building... Take a right-hand turn. And there we see what? Um, you would see a little, so about the size of like a book, Acknowledgement of Country, the first thing that you would see walking in. And then on each wall, you'd probably see two portraits. The portraits would be the size of like a big poster. They're sort of 50 centimetres by 80 centimetres. And each of them would have the kind of messy face of a climate leader. Um, are these which, people uh, famous, like they're known for having messy faces? No, I made them, so they're messy. <laughs> zero protractors, zero rulers were used in the making of these artworks. No. Um, you're talking to a PhD candidate in design who could not for the life of her colour within the lines. Couldn't do it. I still can't really. I use computers now because, no, it doesn't work. Of course, when you're sewing, it's easier because you just cut it out and collage it down. But that's a different story. So you walk in, you see faces of climate leaders, and then... In each portrait, I wanted to reflect, like, what drives them, what motivates the person to act on climate and where they're coming from and what angle they're taking in what's surrounding them on the portrait. Then the final step is always that I stitch in a quote from the most embarrassing story they're willing to put on record. So it's text and images where it's all sewn together And there's a collaged portrait with images around it that are all different for each one. And then, and then the quote as well. So to help someone actually fully visualize this in their mind, what this looks like, imagine the Mona Lisa, if it was made (laughs) out of recycled waste products and offcuts and and upcycled and scavenged stuff with a quote also along the bottom of it, like I'm smiling inscrutably and I, I smile like this all the time, even at funerals, like or a, or a really embarrassing story about this person who we actually know nothing about. But this yeah, is somebody so well known like in the climate space. If, if the if the Mona Lisa really did have a quote, being like, "I am taking a poo right now." Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, with that soft smile, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so this is uh quite unique. Is there any art 
like this you have seen before that you were kind of inspired by? Is there like a better representation for what that looks like other than Mona Lisa with a caption? Yeah, there's some really great artworks coming out of particularly Sweden, which I was inspired by. So textile art has a really strong foundation in social justice movements. And I was really inspired by people that were hand stitching like whole comics and cartoons. So that's text and images to create commentary about particularly issues affecting women, but then all sorts of different issues of social justice. And I really liked that idea of sewing images simply because of the materiality of it, of that I knew where to find all of this stuff that wasn't, you know, buying new paint and buying new canvases and buying and buying and buying. It was just going and getting what I knew was going to waste anyway. And so, yeah, that's where I came to. And in terms of textile art, like that has a long history all over the world. Um, As long as there's been clothes, there's been people finding ways to use the stuff that goes into making clothes to make a statement, to make something that means something to them and to tell stories. So, yeah. Would you include within that, you know, the rich history of textile art and social justice, would you include the, um, the pink knitted hats of the Women's March in the U.S. from about four years ago? That's the sea of... City after city in America and around the world. Today, the day after Donald Trump became their president, they chanted. They urged. We got this. Keep on coming. They shouted. And they waved every insult they could muster. Like, there's a fine line between textile art and craftivism. And I think the difference there would be that there was a pattern for those things and people knitted them and that was great, but it wasn't like they were, like, making it themselves, creating the design, thinking about how it all fit together and making it by hand. It was it was a pattern that went around on the internet and, and everybody copied it, which is great but like there's just a subtle difference which you know again that goes into like what's the difference between arts and craft like that line is very blurred absolutely for those of you who like craftivism is a new term now you know a difference potentially between textile art and craftivism where both of those terms might be new to you and now you know (laughs) what the difference might be which is fantastic yeah um so this artwork series, what was the inspiration behind it? What what got you motivated to make this? Actually, it was you that put me onto the Creative Power Award. So, yeah, I applied for a, like, worldwide small grants process, emerging artists to just have a bit of money to just get a project off the ground um, called the Creative Power Award. And I applied knowing that I could make art with what's around me um, in the absolute, like, minimum amount of consumption that was available. I was I was getting pretty good at upcycling and, and making things without anything new. Minimizing um, inputs, maximizing output. Yeah. They were asking for projects that put social justice issues in a different light. 
to what they're typically reflected as. And I really wanted to, to deal with climate change mostly because I was, and I'm sure you're like on board with this, but I was really tired of how earnest the environmental movement is 100% of the time. (laughs) (laughs) I understand that everybody's stressed, but I just felt like it's really important to remind people that perfection isn't feasible on a planet full of humans and where everybody makes mistakes, everybody screws up, and the important part of it is to just keep chipping away at it and, you know, keep going and learning from it and maybe changing tack but just sticking with it. And so, yeah, I came up with this idea of, well, why don't we get people that have really made a really significant impact with what they do why don't we get them to share their most embarrassing story not because I wanted to make fun of these people but because I wanted to show that they do some pretty stupid shit (laughs) like like they're very clever and very influential people but my goodness um yeah they've all done show me a person that hasn't Yes, and so I won this little grant and this Kickstarter funding. They said that, yes, they liked the idea of putting climate leaders in a different light, but they also loved that it was all materially consistent with the message. It's very, very good. All right, Eve, let's talk about the actual pieces and and who you had on, but rather than just asking for a list of them and talking about them, let's go back to that art gallery in our minds we set up before. And let's start going down the wall. And so we're at the first piece. And who is it of? Should we start maybe at the first interview you did for this series? So my first interview was of climate and energy writer Ketan Joshi, who has pretty prolific publishing history in terms of like news articles. He's written a book called Windfall, really vocal about how the energy market kind of impacts on well, not just emissions, but how that's how policies and businesses get stuck in a carbon emission energy market and how that can be reversed is really what he focuses on. And since interviewing him, he has been retweeted by Greta herself, which is pretty cool. I don't think that's the be all and end all, but like props to him, you know. He's developed this huge presence. He does really great analytical pieces about what the energy market's doing. But this all started when he uh, became one of the guys that would monitor our energy grid for a small renewables energy company. He would monitor the grid for them and do analysis for them and making sure it was all up and running. And one night... He leant over to get the phone. He was the only guy monitoring the grid because it was the night shift. He leant across to get the phone, spilled a glass of wine into his laptop and was on the phone to the Australian Energy Commissioner. They were saying there's something wrong with your bit of the grid. There's going to be a blackout. And he was just watching sparks fly out of his laptop (laughs) as all of this was happening. And he just was like, oh, can I call you back in 15 minutes? And they were like, not really. (laughs) And so he just started wildly like bashing numbers on his computer, just like whacking all the buttons. 
and then he ran into like caught a cab and ran into headquarters at, in the middle of the night turned his laptop on called the electricity commission again okay i'm finally here i'm ready to go what do we need to fix and they went what you fixed it and so when he was just frantically like pressing all these numbers on his computer he stopped a blackout and saved the day well done kitten <laughs> so that was that was his story he's fascinated by the way systems work and how people work and but he's also a massive sci-fi nerd and so i wanted to put it all in in his portrait of like his fascination of how net systems thinking and that sort of thing and i wanted to have this bit on the side of his face which we can put a photo of which looks kind of like a galaxy but it's actually a map of the east australian electricity grid at night beautiful it's not a galaxy then, brain it's a network brain it's a yeah. grid nerd brain it's a grid nerd brain it's a how does this all fit together brain but that doesn't mean he doesn't spill wine straight into his laptop and then just absolutely it's just like dumb luck <laughs> he got through and, and pressed the right button and didn't have a big blackout on his hands that it was his job to prevent I'm glad there's now a, a yeah. piece of art that memorializes that fateful night and Ketten's amazing wine averts blackout yes. story. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, um, good. It's been fun hanging out in front of this piece on the wall. This is the very first among the series. Uh, should, we, should we carry on down the wall down to number two? Sure. Um, so number two more is steps. the Maybe go get a glass of wine. Yes. Oh yeah, you definitely this is this is an exhibition. This is not a high art exhibition. I'm not about like art where you have to like think really deeply about what it's about. I usually go and eat cake. Like, this is organic this is a, wine like, or not out of clean skins. Eh. Yeah. This is definitely one where you get a glass of wine, you have a bit of a chuckle, you're like, This isn't this is a nice portrait and that's a funny story and move on. This is just about a bit of joy. Uh, so, number two, it's Will Stefan. Sort of like a, a physician, if you go into your doctor and she takes five critical measurements that give you your overall health. It could be obviously your temperature, it could be your heart rate, it could be blood pressure, things like that. So we looked at the Earth as a living organism and said, you know, we need to define whether this planet's healthy or not and what indicators do we use. So after debating for quite a while, we came up with nine of them. Absolute legend. He's a climate counsellor, was a professor at ANU, which is where I got to know him. He was one of my lecturers. I'll just quickly translate for the non-Australians. So the Climate Council was set up under one of the Australian Labour administrations to act as like a peak body for climate science. It was then defunded by the government that came in after that and the climate councils carried on as like a non-government funded but still peak body like a self-appointed quasi paramilitary peak body people like will stefan on it like are the you know the most respected experts in the room when they speak about climate and uh, anu being australian national university in canberra the capital yes and told us the story told me the story of how you know one of the most impactful years of his life 
I'm um, sensing a theme. Yeah. Well, look, it was embarrassing. If you don't want to be embarrassed, embarrassment and alcohol do tend to coincide. Yes. Yeah. Alcohol and embarrassment, there definitely is correlation and there's sometimes causation. Yeah. Climate heroes don't drink responsibly. That's basically. Not always. Not always. Um, but in this case, he did drink responsibly because he happened to be drinking with, I can't remember, we can get the clip. The director of the World Climate Research Program and the director of the Human Dimensions Program, and we were all good mates by then, and some senior scientists. Very importantly, we also had a woman named Jane Lubchenco, who was head of ICSU, the International Council of Scientific Unions, which was the parent body of all of us. The woman who went on to be the head of NOAA, the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration, during the Obama years, and a bunch of different people, and they were all sitting around and going, no, my field of science is important. No, my field of science is important. And they all kind of came to the thing of, I think we have to integrate all of this together. And that was when Earth system science really became something big. So the atmospheric guys with the land use guys with the oceanographers and the, you know, it was when they all decided that it's like, oh, we need to actually just integrate all of this together. And that's how we get today's climate models the way that we do. So it's pretty amazing that, you know, scientists like that were in a position to make those calls and to create models that we now use in the IPCC report. Mm, that um, new field of science is not only in living memory, it's actually recent history. Yes. And, you know, I can't really get past that without acknowledging that, like, if colonization hadn't happened, you wouldn't need that level of science. Yes. Um, yeah. You need that, that big a science to solve this big a problem that yeah, colonization Yeah. The only reason we need that caused. level of science is because... Extractivism you know, and just consumption of the planet has yeah. got to the stage it's at. Yeah, driven by white supremacy. So, but it's pretty cool that he was in that room and that he had that conversation. And he's just had an amazing career in science all the way through his career from using the machines that were used to map DNA for the first time all the way up to creating planetary boundaries. <laughs> and so he was just a scientist as someone who studied science, he was just a scientist at a time where all of this knowledge was being generated and all of this science was being produced. And it's pretty amazing um, what he has done and how he has impacted the world with that. But his most embarrassing story actually comes from when he was working for Julia Gillard, when he was in what was to become the Climate Council, but when it was actually just funded by the government. He was doing a series of town halls, was in Alice Springs, and he was supposed to be there for three days, but his assistants had only booked him into a hotel room for two days. And so he walked into this hotel room, and there's a guy standing at the window in his underwear smoking a cigarette. And Will goes, the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> As you do. Oh, my God. Yes. And so he almost comes to blows with this guy. Because he just doesn't understand why he just guys in his room. And then the guy's like, this is my room. (laughs) It gets very tense. It doesn't come to blows. But as it turns out, Will Steffen has a real cheeky streak in him. Because he still has this guy's hotel room key. 
So Will yields the room, but has the key. He yields the room, he does not yield the key. And so he has the entire, this is in Alice Springs, he has the entire department in Alice Springs doing these town halls on climate change. And so he goes, okay, checkout time for us is a strict 7 a.m. We are getting out tomorrow morning. And I am opening a tab under this room. And he bought (laughs) drinks for the entire department on the other guy's dime. That man who, let's remember, was smoking a cigarette in his underwear is to this day still in underwear because he can no longer afford pants, thanks to Will Stefan. He's still paying off that tab to that hotel in Alice. The man's never been able to leave Alice Springs. No. (laughs) He's still washing dishes in the hotel bar. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Will. That's a fantastic story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm sure some of the people on that trip, that was also their most embarrassing story for just having been a part of it, much less Will, who put up the room key. Yeah, but, that's quality. you know, I'm very happy because it's like, that's a level of just petty revenge that drives the joy in my life. And I'm so happy <laughs> that someone as globally minded and, and impactful as Will Steffen he still he still gets up to a bit of petty mischief and that made me feel really good. Think global, lyric and local. Well, as Will lives by think global, drink local. <laughs> <laughs> ah, did he actually say that? Yeah, we can get the quote from Oh my god, yes, that goes here. And I, ha- I have to say that I, I have a motto of, of think globally and drink locally. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So good. Very important. Oh, okay. Now I've had a glass of wine with Ketten and I've had a beer with Will on someone else's dime. So where are we off to next? We're moving along to Blair Polizzi. So Blair was the head of comms for Greenpeace International. And then she went on to be one of the founding members of 350.org. She's good friends with Bill McKibben. And now she's in climate and capital media. So she does investment media to try and drive investment out of fossil fuels and into renewables as fast as possible. In terms of 350 and the divestment movement, like that's definitely been enormous part of my climate activism since I started in 2011. Yes. It's pretty amazing that she was just like one of the people that got that off the ground and just kickstarted it. Yeah, it's safe to say that, that Blair's efforts and, and Blair's words have helped move a lot of money. They've, they've moved a serious amount of assets out of damaging, emitting fossil fuel and other industries. Yes, they've moved an enormous amount of money, like billions, if not trillions of dollars away from fossil fuels. So that's amazing. It was a joy to to speak with her and to get to know her. So it's safe to say that her credentials as being a climate legend are burnished and verified now, but this isn't just a Legends and Climate series. This is a Embarrassments of Climate Legends series. So what did Blair do? So what did Blair do? We're just going to backtrack a little bit there and tell one more story, which is that she was also part of the comms campaign, which... I'm an international policy, environmental policy buff, 
and it was the London Dumping Convention. They were negotiating about like how much you can dump in the ocean and that sort of thing. And she got footage before you can email footage. She was part of the team that got footage of Russians dumping radioactive waste in the ocean from Japan to London. And two weeks later, it was banned, outright banned. We caught the Russians dumping liquid radioactive waste at sea in the Sea of Japan on a boat. I was in London. There were people in Japan sending footage through this new technology we created, digital sending of footage. And that's amazing. Like to have the international community see footage and respond to it within two weeks to go, this never happens again on behalf of the environment. A girl can only dream. How good. So that was part of that. And so at a similar time, she was working for Greenpeace and she was training all of these Greenpeace activists and Greenpeace organisers how to talk to press and how to negotiate with the press, who oftentimes were quite hostile towards Greenpeace because they are engaged in civil disobedience and people don't respond well to civil disobedience sometimes. You know, we've got people here that are being accused of being terrorists because they sat down in the middle of the road. You have to be quite disciplined with how you deal with the press and she went on camera for something that she was like, I kind of know about this. I know enough. They needed someone to go on and talk to the press about it. And she disobeyed all of her own rules. She said all of the wrong things. She undermined Greenpeace's message entirely. <laughs> and the head of Greenpeace at the time was a guy called Lord Milchett. Yeah, a lord. That's a whole thing. And so her quote is, Lord Melchett wanted to kill me because here was her not only undermining all of Greenpeace but undermining her own authority by setting a key example of everything you shouldn't do and everything she's trained everyone not to do. She went on camera and did. <laughs> she bounced back and then went and started one of the biggest divestment movements in the history of the world. So, you know, you're allowed to have one giant stuff up in your career or several and as long as you keep at it it's okay ah so we've spilled wine we've charged beer on someone else's account and now i'm pouring one out for blair <laughs> this is gonna be a running theme yes warning <laughs> what's next on the docket Your friend and my friend, Miss Lindo. Mm hmm. Now, Lynn is someone I know, and I can't at all imagine she'll do anything embarrassing. I, this is, this is uh, someone who at 16 went to climate reality, and the stories I've already heard from her, uh, like, I'll see if we can be topped here, but like, Lynn did all the things a precocious teen would in, you know, the presence yeah. of a former vice president of the United States. Yes. So Lynn's story was the first story that I came across where I felt like as a 17-year-old she shouldn't have been embarrassed and that everyone around her has now made my list inappropriate for her to be embarrassed by this. But she did go on a climate. It was like the follow-up to An Inconvenient Truth. Yeah, the and Inconvenient she, Sequel, Truth yeah. to Power. Yeah. 
and she was at the time the 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 teenager that everyone was looking to um as hope for the future oh yes i forgot that lindo was proto greta for a time yeah lindo was greta before greta was greta um and so you know she was by far the youngest person in this documentary and talking about how we can change the world and one of the people the cameraman went what do you want to be when you grow up and she said i want to be secretary general of the un and personally i think she'd make a great secretary general of the un and someone has to do the job so <laughs> you know so, so far there's of- nothing embarrassing here honestly like and what happens next is people are monsters yes so she's a 17 year old who is friends with al gore and this documentary was shown at the opera house she was introduced by kate blanchett and she said she wanted to be the secretary general of the un and 500 people laughed at her 500 adults laughing at a 17 year old kid if i ever meet kate blanchett i'm gonna ask if she laughed I was going to say, let's not assume that she laughed, but... No. You're going to ask. But I have questions. If she laughed at Lindo, that was the first embarrassing story where I can understand why she felt embarrassed, but I wasn't like, oh, my God, you're so silly. I was, who are these people? I want 500 names. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Well... The audience at the Sydney Opera House that night, they would drive me to drink. Yes. Uh, and, and I'm sure Lynn, you know, has had, you know, a few times dedicated this drink to those 500 people on Eve's list at the Sydney Opera House. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. that's, that's heartbreaking. Um, yeah, it was so rough. And she was Yeah, she she did not stop her. You know, it was, uh, I, I went to the Brisbane Climate Reality Training in 2019 before all this happened, and um, it was... 2,000 of us, I think, in the room, and there's Lynn introducing Al Gore. Lynn, who pulled strings and kindly got the climactic logo right behind Al Gore up on the big screen. Um, yeah, Lynn did not let that keep her down, so it was that's a good story. Not one bit. She's out there, absolutely, and now she's raising future leaders and, and helping young people take action on climate change and empowering themselves which is just amazing again if she feels like she wants to be secretary general of the un i will make as many textile artworks she needs i, I would i would text <laughs> that to a number like is that how they elect the secretary general it's not like american idol no it's no you know, can't even i don't know how it. they do with secretary general but like i feel like al gore's endorsement would mean something yes Definitely. And Al Gore coming for those 500 people at the Sydney Opera House should no, mean I think, something too. I think that's not Al Gore's job. I think that's definitely on me. Um, yep. Deputized. Yeah. I'm just I will still be hunting them once wins. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Well, shall we, shall we ruefully turn away from this one and take a couple more steps down the line to... The next in this cast of characters. Yes, uh, we've gone through. Second last, we're going through. Or second last one um, is Dan Dan Illich, which I have to say 
it's very hard. Dan Elish being the host of Irrational Fear and a and a long-standing comedian and satirist here in Australia. And it's hard because comedians are pretty good at talking about embarrassing stuff and not being embarrassed because that's kind of in the job description. One of the prerequisites, right? Yeah, to be a yeah. comedian. Should yeah. we just say for people who maybe don't know Dan and, and know Rational Fear, uh, Dan was the showrunner on Tonightly with Tom Ballard, and he's been a frequent, uh, he's a mem- member of Giant Dwarf in Sydney. Yeah, been around the Australian comedy scene quite a bit, and he worked for Al Jazeera for a time. And he got an audition for The Daily Show, so that's pretty good. And so his most embarrassing story is when he was working for Al Jazeera, and he made his audition tape for The Daily Show on one of Al Jazeera's green screens and he just got called out of the blue by, like, the headquarters in Qatar and they just fired him. So is this because he'd filmed his audition on one of their green screens in one of their studios? He'd used their resources to make a, essentially a job application for someone else. So that's a shame. Uh, <laughs> oh no uh. yeah but it's one of those things right where then Ronnie Chang got the job and I love Ronnie Chang I love him on the daily show yeah but you know I think you know he found a really great way to engage people with climate change here in Australia he was up at, at Newcastle and down at Bega and taking climate change to regional audiences in a really entertaining way and that's a really important role that he's stepped into so good on it yeah that not many other people can do or or are doing i'm glad his firing from el desira for making a job application on the job yeah didn't get him down yeah and and the background of his one is so similarly to that to the way he takes on climate change and and brings people together for it is so he told me the story of during the fires was when he was overwhelmed by climate change as so many people are where he you know as a comedian who talks for a living was lost for words he didn't know what to say and he did this really great thing which was he put in motion all of these different artists and comedians and activists coming together to share a message and to kind of lift that like when he couldn't speak to lift that and to put other people's voices to the fore. And I think that was really powerful. And so that was the inspiration for the kind of, if you look at the portrait, there's a smoky background and then there's triangles of, which was kind of like the way that he links together different people and different ideas and different places to create a message and allow that to come to the fore, which is really great. So, to bring our running theme of which alcoholic beverage to pair each artwork with, we have arrived at the finale and someone who would advise you for your own health not to drink, probably, or drink <laughs> in moderation. Uh, we have arrived at, yes, the the very last artwork. And, and who's this of? This is Dr. Kim Lowe, a GP in Western Sydney, which for our international listeners is sort of the most low socioeconomic area of Sydney, which is our biggest city. It has a lot of systemic structural inequalities and they are getting worse. And they're the victims of environmental injustice in so many different ways. That place that famously during the Black Summer had the 48 degrees in the city for like four days running. That 
Parramatta. That's that's Western Sydney if you're keeping yeah. track at home. So, like, I've been working for 32 years in Western Sydney, and I could you can actually see and feel the temperature getting hotter over 32 years. Also, for international listeners, GP is a local doctor. So, yeah. general practitioner. Kim- a local practitioner. So Kim Lowe is, is, you know, everybody's everyday doctor. When they're feeling a bit unwell, they come to her. Um, and she cares deeply about her community. Part of that is that she cares deeply about the environment and that a safe and livable environment is absolutely critical for community health. And that is what drives her every day. And so wanted to reflect that in her portrait, the way that she nourishes everything around her and she puts so much work into making everything around her as healthy as possible whether it's her garden her kids her community her nation everything that she can have any sway over she works to care for it and it's amazing and her most embarrassing story was actually a really sad one to finish on because she was talking at a uni as a panelist at a university webinar and the question came up what do you imagine 2030 being like and she just burst into tears and she couldn't stop crying she's at the center of a COVID outbreak where she's a doctor and she is just wanting the environment for it and I think really the take home from hers is that, oh, just do it for Kim. She cares so much and she needs a break. <laughs> so I want to make it in in that sense with the with 2030, I want to prove her wrong. I want to make it that 2030 is a livable and, and healthier place than 2020 is. Yeah, do it for Kim. And then once that's done, then I'll hunt down those 500, but I won't forget. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, they've got a little bit of time if you're going to, like, prioritize it that way. Like, as much as you want to hunt down the 500, you kind of want to save the future for for Kim first. Yeah, yeah. So that's priority number one. Priority number two is they're on my list. Yeah. They've got a head start, but they better get to step in because you're coming for them. Yeah. I need some more cake after that. That was brilliant. That's a very fun walk down this wall looking at the this artwork in my mental art gallery. So Eve, we've got to the end of this wall, of this your first gallery showing of your art. I, as we speak, it's in the throes still of chaos and madness. And you know we're talking about something that's still to happen, but it definitely will. What happens next? What's what's next for you, Eve, after this first showing of art? Um, so I think one of the great things that I learned and what I came across from this art is that um, telling stories and finding ways to reflect those stories can be a really great way to not only honour the work that people are doing, but to find avenues of how you might engage. So I was feeling really stuck in where I fit in the environmental movement before I started this art series, and I'm feeling a lot more comfortable about where I sit at the other side of that. And so I think where to next isn't 
necessarily making artwork myself. I want to encourage people to start creating specifically out of things, materials that you've already got to tell stories that make you feel like there are really great people working really hard on this and that you can be one of them. I think the next step is going to be something more collective and something more open about different ways that we can create and different ways that we can tell stories so that people feel more included and more inspired to keep working. It's fantastic. I'm very excited about that prospect and that possibility and we can't wait to see what you do next Eve and so happy to have you part of the Climactic Collective and coming on here weirdly right as as a guest on Art Break they're talking about your work and what you've done as an artist uh, so great to bring these clips and these actual stories from the people themselves to add into to this story thank you so much for your time thank you to Creative Power for giving this the jump start and, uh, and thank you to these six amazing people who agreed to not, you know, to tarnish their reputations and by doing so, improving their effectiveness as leaders. Because, yes, we can actually now imagine being these people because everyone makes mistakes rather than just looking up to them, thinking that these are people who can do no wrong. It, it makes them more powerful as figures, I think, knowing that, ah, uh, yes, they are human, too. So I want to say, uh, do it for Kim. Do it for Kim. Linda for Secretary General. Don't record your job interview from your current employer's studio. No, don't do that. If you have spent your career teaching everybody what to do, then follow those instructions. Get your room key back. Yes. And if you can't get it back, petty revenge. <laughs> <laughs> And if there are sparks flying out of your laptop, press all of the buttons. Or it's okay to drink wine on the job. (laughs) Amazing. Might just save the world. The Climactic Collective.